Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Over 25 years ago, on September 29, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Tung, actung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, El Alamein Week. And we've done the first battle, we, which means... We, we've done the background, we've done the, we've done the flight, we've done the first battle. But So not far around the corner is the second battle. But James, we've been framing these with some verse, because uh, you want to hear from the people going through this, um, I yeah. think. Well, I, I, I've chosen another one from, from, from Keith Douglas, just because, you know, he was there, yeah. Um, you know, and he's and he's writing about exactly what we're talking about. So the first one was Vergiss My Nick about the dead German and the letter he sees and the and the photograph. This one is about his own comrades in arms, and it's called Aristocrats. The noble horse with courage in his eye, clean in the bone, looks up at a shell burst. Away fly the images of the shires, but he puts the pipe back in his mouth. Peter was unfortunately killed by an 88. It took his leg away. He died in the ambulance. I saw him crawling on the sand. He said, it's most unfair. They've shot my foot off. How can I live among this gentle, obsolescent breed of heroes and not weep? Unicorns, almost, for they are fading into two legends in which their stupidity and chivalry are celebrated. Each fool and hero will be an immortal. These planes were their cricket pitch. And in the mountains, the tremendous drop fences brought down some of the runners. Here then, under the stones and earth, they dispose themselves. I think with their famous unconcern. It is not gunfire, I hear, but a hunting horn. And I love that because, and I think it's appropriate for now, because it it, it marks the start of the transition, I think. He, of course, is writing about the Sherwood Rangers. And they, at this precise moment, were going from amateurs those unicorns almost yeah the people who have sort of you know framing everything in terms of cricket pitches and and horse racing to suddenly actually getting a grip and becoming really rather good at what they did so at the end of the last episode alex and monty at takeover mm. and what's very interesting is there's a there's a considerable amount of debate around what in the end it, are they simply inheriting a load of stuff? They're picking up reins that someone else has already been using. But um, there's a really, there's, there, it's quite clear 
that the arrival of these two is electrifying on Eighth Army. 13th of August, Mon- Monty gets his guys together. and he He's not supposed that- to take over till the 15th. Yes, he gets exactly. That, he hustles but, up there immediately. Anyway. He don't care. I mean, there's, this is this is the Monty way. There's a war on, and he knows best. So he says the defence of Egypt lies here at Alamein and on the Weas Ruizet Ridge. What is the use of digging trenches in the Delta? It is quite useless. If we lose this position, we lose Egypt. All the fighting troops now in the Delta must come out here and fight at once, and will. Here we will stand and fight. There will be no further withdrawal. I have ordered that all plans and instructions dealing with fur withdrawal are to be burnt and at once. We will stand and fight here. If we can't stay alive, then let us stay here dead. Mm. Now, the thing is, what else is Eighth Army going to do? But what's really interesting, uh, and uh, Jonathan Fennell's fantastic on this in his Fighting the People's War thing. In the census reports, in the, uh, 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 this message from the top of Eighth Army goes right through everyone's mailbag. They're all talking about it. Because what what Freiburg then goes and talks to his off uh, on the 16th of August, goes and talks to his chaps. I want to make the army commander's views clear to everybody. This looking over your shoulder and cranking up to get back to the position in the rear is to cease. Here we're going to stay and here we're going to fight. There's no question of going to any back position from here. We are to make this position as complete as we can. And then Kippenberg says the same stuff. And it goes straight into the men's letters. And and what's striking about that is that it, this is you know Jonathan's really brilliant on this. In July, in the in the uh, Kiwi mailbag, one percent of the um, blokes writing home have anything good to say about Tommy. They think they're they think they're fighting a a, a losing battle. They're looking over their shoulders. The whole thing's a shit show. But Monty, and and of course. I know that, you know, that it's more complicated, perhaps, than one chap coming in and, uh, you know, bust duffing people up. But this message, this central idea, then runs right through Eighth Army. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I, I think and it's, it's very striking. But I do think we need to take a step further back from that, because, <laughs> because Alexander gets out there first. And you you're saying that the rival of this pair is electrifying. And I think it's really important to stress that this is, in the narrative, it's always Monty's show. But yeah. I think, I think, and, and part of that is because Alexander, it's not in his nature to blow his own trumpet. You know, he's not a, he's not a, um, a, a media hawk um, by any stretch of the imagination. Right. And he's coming at it from a completely different perspective. Yeah. What you get with Alexander is you get a general who looks like a general. He carries himself He's immaculate. He's good looking. He's got a record which is absolutely second to none, and people know it. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is a guy who's a winner. So so just him arriving is 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 just really good news. He is this guy who's commanded troops in battle at every rank. Yeah. You know, including German troops in the Baltic Land there in 1990, 1920, in the in the Russian Civil War. He's just had a rough time in Burma though, hasn't he? Yes, he has, but he but he's been shoehorned in to bring in and, and stop the rot and get the Burma court across the Irrawaddy yeah. and he does it. So he, he, he fulfills the brief that he's got, you know, he's the, the last British soldier to leave Dunkirk and he had, his caps are made by his, uh, by his own hat maker in St. James's with a sort of slightly higher, higher peak, which he adopted from the Russians back in 1919. He rather liked the look of it. Lock and co. I believe if you, if you ever get are on St. James, go in there and um, uh, get your head measured with the head measuring machine that they've got that, um, 
because they've a, they've a selection of head measurements, including Monty's, where they, they, they've got the little the little thing that is your hat fitting. Charlie Chaplin, Monty, yep. Her Majesty the Queen. There you are, same people. <laughs> and so he 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 comes already with with you know th- th- there is nothing on him that suggests you know association with failure with a lack of experience a lack of knowledge he's just got it and he's got charm and abundance and what he does is he and so he wins people over he, he's got a kind of aura about him yeah which which no one else who has been in command in the middle east or the desert they just don't have it in the same way he's just got this imperturbability this calm assurance and unlike wavell unlike orkinlek He's already seen in the second world. I know Walking Net was briefly in Norway, but but you know he's overseen significant battles in command where he's absolutely cut the mustard. Yeah. So so already that's a Philip because here's someone who means business. He, he he's what here's one of the kind of top draw guys who's come in. He's been yeah. he's been uh, and he goes around Cairo and he goes around all the base stations and he goes up to Eighth Army and what he sees is massively plummeting morale and he understands absolutely that that is a problem and it is actually he who says to monty there can be no withdrawals which is why we've got the independent company t-shirt with that on yeah obviously it goes without saying that monty is in complete agreement with him and that there is not even a discussion over this i mean that they are absolutely of the same mind but it is alexander when he arrives who says there can be no more withdrawals that is his line and it is adopted. So it goes from from it goes from from command to army mm. to corps to division to brigade, all the way down. And Monty's his hand on earth, really, isn't he? In this in this sort of relationship, isn't he? Exactly. And the other thing that Alexander says is he says says Cairo has got too many distractions. It's 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 too much of a flesh pot. It's it's kind of it's too busy. There's too many distractions at the Gazira Sporting Club at Shepherd's Veranda all this kind of stuff. But, you know, this is not the place. I'm going to move my headquarters out of town. I'm going to move it to uh, to, to Gezira, where the um, uh, Giza, rather, where the pyramids are. And he sets up his own camp, which he calls Caledon Camp, which is after his ancestral land back at home in Ireland, which is, 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 is Caledon, and his older brother is the Earl of Caledon. And Caledon Camp is set up, and and... and he streamlines the whole thing. He says, I don't want all this fluff. I don't want all this. This is going to be a much more streamlined stuff, and we're going to work hard in the desert where we're going to concentrate on the job in hand and not kind of knock off at three and go off to Shepherd's Hotel and all this kind of stuff, go and play polo. Well, yes, because that, that's that's the Monty thing about, you know, the, the, everyone off, everyone buggers off to the Shepherd's Hotel in Cairo and has a good time. And so this message has already come down to... So, so he and Monty absolutely is one. And so so he is the guy. So he says to Monty, right, I am going to protect you. He doesn't say this to Monty, but he, what he decides is, I'm going to protect Monty. I'm going to give Monty what he wants. I'm going to be the facilitator. And this is the other thing I think is really important to understand about Alexander, is that very, very few officers instinctively understand this, that as you go up the ranks your role changes. Hmm. And what he understands is that when he's a commander-in-chief of, um, of of a command, rather than an army commander, his role is a facilitator. It's an overseer. It's, it's, it's the chairman of the board to Monty's CEO. And it's important that he is the buffer between Montgomery and Whitehall, you know, Churchill and Brooke, yeah. that any problems at that higher level go to him he doesn't bother Monty with them. Monty's job is just to sort out Eighth Army and nothing else. 
And so he he puts everything that he needs to do and put in practice. And there is a lot of stress from 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 Churchill right from the word go. You need to get on, but you need to counterattack. Yeah. And and Alex just dead bats it back, dead bats it back. And so what it means is that that Monty can go into the desert, have a look at, at Eighth Army, and together with Alexander, they agree what needs to happen. They need to be resupplied. They need to be retrained. They need to work out the armor, particularly. It's, it's how you use the armor in this this environment that is the, the, the big conundrum. And the first thing that Monty does when he sees Mary Cunningham, Mary Cunningham goes, "We've been really trying. We think it'd be a really good idea for Desert Air Force and and Eighth <laughs> Army Tactical Headquarters shared a headquarters. Put the two tents together. No." <laughs> and, and Monty goes, brilliant. And Tommy Elmhurst loves him, says he's a veritable little tiger. And he stands up and does this speech <laughs> to all the army commanders. So he gathers around the corps commanders, the divisional commanders, plus the Desert Air Force guys. And he stands up and goes, gather around, gather around. He says, there is no discipline in this army. None. And from today, anyone in 8th Army who belly aches about orders received from his superior whether colonels or brigadiers, brigadiers to divisional commanders, divisional commanders to corps commanders, or corps commanders to me, will go very quickly to the worst place I can think of. The very worst. The Vawanda of the Shepherd's Hotel in Cairo. <laughs> it's just amazing. Yeah. And, and you know, Mary and Tommy just go, woo, you know, bring it on. I mean, it's, it is interesting, isn't it? Because got... Um... You know who obviously isn't in is isn't in this story. Um, no. By the by this by the point he gets the job that M- Monty's Monty's inherited. A lot of people think he's done. He's also it's a terrible appointment. He doesn't want to do it. Yeah, when well, he's complete and he's totally tangled up in in what's gone before and and the just the business of a new broom and the and like you say this combination. So you've got. You've got the sort of the smooth. I mean, if you you know, the, the, you could look at it. You've got the smooth establishment guy, which is which is Alex, because he very much is. He's a guardsman. He's 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 yep. very much establishment, sort of, and the sort of person Churchill likes. And then Monty also kind of fits the Churchill Maverick bracket. It's a perfect team. It's it, it and it's. I mean, you know, I don't want to sound like a, an idiot, but you know, the creative tension of that pairing. Is really, really, is really important. But Monty comes in, and one of the things I think what's really interesting about his assessment of Eighth Army, and and this is reflected, and obviously we've got to talk about Alam Halfa, but it's reflected in the um, Second Battle of Alamein. Is he looks at Eighth Army, he goes, right, there's things you can do that you're capable of, and there's things you are not capable of, and part of this three M's thing is when I when you're given stuff to do, you can't do because you're not well-trained enough or because your commanders yeah. aren't up to it. And you haven't got enough of it. You haven't got enough of the kit. Your morale goes down the toilet, and so you perform badly. And so whatever my strategy is, because I can't pull it off tactically, um, I have no strategy. And uh, 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 strategy could, could could go hang. And and so very much what Monty does is he is a big part of his shakedown is to be realistic about Eighth Army. Yes. Not to go, I can turn this thing into a an absolute um, fighting blade of a machine in the time I've got. He thinks, right, this works, that doesn't work. Artillery has been proven, as we said in the last episode, to be particularly effective, um, certainly on the first day of the First Battle of Alamein. So is the Air Force. So let's harness that. So is the Air Force. So he's looking at it from the point of view of, right, and the thing that doesn't work, 
and that I've really got to try and get a handle on is this cavalry charge stuff. Yes, but 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 again, this is where he he's got a meeting of minds with Alex because Alex is also of exactly the same opinion that, that the conscript army you need to keep it simple. Yeah, you, you you need to supply them well, train them in the basics. Yeah, so they're like automatons. You need to, you know it's Alex's idea to set up the battle schools. Yeah, which is this idea that you have simple instructions, you use live ammunition, you give them a taste of what it's going to be like, so so that when they go into action, they know what they're going to do. Yeah, and so this is and and he. Is absolutely as one with Monty on the problems of the of how to use the armor and better coordination between the infantry and the artillery. Yeah. So, so it is absolutely a, a marriage of minds. Yeah. And what's really interesting? Guess who he chooses to be his chief of staff? Yeah. Um. Well, it's it's, it's Dick McCreary who's been fired. Who's been fired by the organizer and is waiting for a passage home. And he yeah. goes, "You know a lot about armor, don't you?" And McCreary goes, yes. And he goes, I want you as my chief of staff because he recognises that understanding how you harness armour with infantry and artillery is key to the whole thing. So Monty immediately says to Alex, I, I see the way I see this is creating a corps de chasse. So, th- so this is the exploitation force, which on one level looks exactly like the Orkinleck thing, which is punch a hole with the infantry and then the cavalry burst through. But it's not the same because the corps de chasse is an all-arms unit. It's like a panzer division. It's an all-arms motorised combination which can exploit, and they're operating together. So my old friend Albert Martin, for example, who was in the 7th Motor Brigade, 7th Motor Brigade get taken out of 7th Armoured Brigade, uh, Armoured Division, and moved into the 1st Armoured Division, which is the beating heart of the 10 Corps that he creates, this Corps de Chasse. Yeah. Get very annoyed. They have to paint over the Jaboas and, and, and put on a, a pointless, useless, idiotic rhino instead. He gets very cross about it. Um, <laughs> But 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 the point is, they're not um, uh, just you know, and they're being retrained as anti-tank gunners. Yeah. On six pounders. Yeah. So the point is, you're using motorized infantry, tanks with anti-tank guns and artillery together in a in a cohesive unit, and that's the big difference. And the the other thing is, obviously, you get M- Monty stuff in, which is to train, 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 which is the, what he's been doing in England. Um. You, you I, I met an Alamein veteran a very long time ago who said, I hated him. He cancelled the beer ration. Right. So. <laughs> so Monty's footprint in, in looking after his men goes right down into their daily, it literally into their daily habits. You know, this guy knew it was him that had done that as well. So. Yeah. So th- this is the thing. And this, you know, Montgomery makes his presence known. He makes sure he visits people. He's trying to inspire confidence in his generalship. He experiments with hats. There's that fantastic uh, Australian bush hat picture where he's got tons of badges on. Jack it. Fraser is the guy, isn't he? He's in yeah. um, in six RTR. He's with Mike. Do you remember what I mentioned yesterday the other day? Sam Bradshaw from from yeah. Liverpool. Yeah. He's in six RTR. So he he goes and visits six RTR, and they're really impressed with him. They like what he says, and he's wearing an Aussie bush hat at the time. And Jack Fraser says to him, "Why don't you try this beret, sir?" Yeah. And he they put him in a Grant tank, and Monty goes, "Do you know what? That's my look." It's extraordinary, isn't it? And it's genius. It's genius in its simplicity. But 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 once he gets there, he, he they, they know from intelligence that Rommel is, is building up to plan an attack. So Montgomery says, right for the word go, okay, what we're doing, we're going to hold that attack, build up our strength, and then we will counterattack. We will only counterattack when we're ready. But first of all, we've got to be ready for this attack when it comes. And what I don't want is anyone charging off after them. It's a purely defensive battle just to stop them. No balaclava charges, 23rd Armour Brigade, you're on notice, no charging. Just stay where you are and just see it off. And, and I'm going to rely on the RAF to do as much of the hard yards as possible. And this is what's going to happen. 
it's it's fascinating, isn't it? Because none of these charges have particularly worked well. Yet people are wedded to it as the as the kind of their option, their only option. It is incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is extraordinary that that you know that, that I mean, it's definition of madness stuff, isn't it? Trying the same thing over and over again. It, it falls into that expecting a different result. It falls into that sort of category. Yes, it's like the Japanese continuing to go down, advance down the same wadi every night. Yeah, yeah. But we should talk briefly. But we should we should take a break in a minute. But we should talk about um just very quickly about Rommel's situation. Well, no, we looked. Yeah, we need to go to the other side of the hill. Yeah, exactly. So go um, to the other side of the hill. So should we do that so, for the break? I think we've got well, time yeah. Why this. not? So Rommel's done what he ought to do, which is stop. Yes. Lick his wounds, have a think, um, weigh stuff up. He's 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 lost. Um, Seabohm and Fellas as his sources of intelligence. So he knows a lot less about what's going on um, uh, in Eighth Army. He's knackered. He's absolutely exhausted. He's exhausted. His men are exhausted. And his situation is a problem because, because, you know, suddenly Alexandria is 60 miles away. Cairo is 85, something like that. Yeah. You know, they're, they're only 150 miles from, from Suez Canal, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So Eighth Army's supply line situation is suddenly looking fantastically good. And they're getting more supplies anyway. Rommel reckons he needs 100,000 tonnes of supplies a month. The problem is, is that Tripoli is by far and away the biggest port, and that's 1,300 miles away. Yes. Then the next biggest is Benghazi, which is 800 miles away. Tobruk is small, and that's 300 miles away. And Mersamatru is tiny, and that's 109 miles away. So the closer the ports get, the smaller they become. And what's really interesting is that between May and August, all shipping pretty much, 90, 95% of his shipping, gets through to Benghazi. Benghazi is the main port. Yeah. And actually, because their big ships have all gone, smaller ports are sort of okay. It's a handling issue that's a, that's a, that's a real problem, of sort of getting it on and off. Yeah. So the Axis are forced to use ever smaller boats across the Mediterranean because their large ones have gone in 1941 and 40 and all But in May and August, they're, they're, they're are largely untouched because Malta is subdued. Well, I was just going to say, there's, there's a meanwhile here, isn't there, Jim? Meanwhile, in Malta, and, and of course, pedestal convoy is successful. The, the Ohio coming in on the on the uh, feast day of Santa Maria on the fifteenth of August, and all that, that transforms everything because suddenly, within a matter of days, um, RAF can operate from Malta, but also use it as a staging post. Yeah. So you can you can set off from from Egypt, and you can you mm. can fly over a, up up the coast to Benghazi, and then go up, turn off up to Malta, and stage in Malta, um, and ditto from Tripoli. So that changes a lot and, and, and the problem is is that although ninety one thousand tons of supplies are, are delivered um to the axis forces in north africa in july half of the fuel ration that they get is used up in delivering it to the front they're just getting it there which is obviously yeah. crazy you need twice the fuel ration to deliver the fuel ration is the problem right. with the fuel ration and, and although although the smaller ships means you can use smaller ports obviously it's economies of scale yeah. And it takes longer to unload and load because there's different ships. It's much easier to do it on one ship rather than 12. And he says, unless I get two, unless I get 2,000 cubic meters of fuel, 500 tons of ammunition by the 25th of, of August, and a further 2,000 cubic meters of fuel by the 27th, and 2,000 tons of ammunition by the 30th, I cannot proceed. And in contrast at this moment, the British are now unloading 100,000 tons of Fuel a month. Right, a month. Just fuel. Yeah. So not ammunition, not tanks, not, yeah. you know, just 
fuel. Right. But Rommel does launch his attack anyway, even though <laughs> of course he does. his ships are on the way, because that's the Rommel way. I mean, he's obviously got um, uh, Hitler on the phone going, you're only, come on, you're only 150 miles from the Suez Canal. You're only, you're only you know, 60 miles from uh, Cairo. What's the problem? There's, he's under that pressure too, isn't he? Well, he's got, and he's got this convoy of, I think it's nine ships which are due to come in by the end of the month. And by the time he launches, three of those precious fuel tankers have already been sunk. Yeah. And he thinks, okay, well, next one's due in. San Andreas is due in on the 30th. You know, so maybe I'll just, you know, hopefully that'll get in. But that's sunk too. By that time, it's too late. That's that's ultra, isn't it? It's ultra yeah. and sub and subs. Op- is it submarines operating out of Malta? It's submarines and ships. Yeah. So the tenth submarine flotilla is now back in Malta. Yeah. And it and it's just the combination is just devastating. And the combination of ultra these decrypts yeah. of Enigma traffic, which know so that means they know exactly when the convoys are coming. They send over reconnaissance planes from Malta. They're spotted. Two minutes later, you know, bow fighters turn up and. That's that. and, and, and you and, and submarines and it's and it's in this game over. Well, should we should we take a break? Yeah, or what on the hinge of what's happening with Alamalfa? And then talk about the Battle of Alamalfa and then finally, however many episodes we are into this, set the stage for the second battle of Alamalfa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um uh, we'll uh, we'll be back in a second. Over 25 years ago, on September 29, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, El Alamein Week. Alamein Week. Alamein Week. Alamein Week. Um, with, Alamein uh, Week. Me, Al Murray, and James Holland, of course. And we, we've we just got to the Battle of Alam Halfa, which is, it's not a stalemate, this one, is it, Jim? No, this is definitely not a stalemate. It's not a stalemate. No, because because I think you have to judge a battle also by what you're trying to achieve in the battle. I mean, if, you're, if, you're, if your aim is, to, is just to defend it, Defend the enemy, which is what what um, Orkinlek's aim is at the beginning of July when Rommel first attacks, and I think you can say that's a victory for him. But yeah. if your aim is to break through the, the Axis positions in a counterattack attempt one two three four, and you don't, then you can't call that a victory. No. Um, I think you can call this a victory for, for Montgomery because his aim is purely to stop it. Yes, um, and because he's concluded 
that doing these harebrained counterattacks is something Eighth Army isn't capable of. So don't offer yourself up for defeat, yep. because otherwise you cause a morale collapse. And then you can't do anything. Then you then you can't bring anything into effect. And it's 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 a quite it's a it's a it's a, a straight line that piece of thinking, isn't it? It's not it's not it's not difficult. And I think the people he's dealing with, the generals, the, the, the commanders, he's, army commanders he's dealing with, generals he's dealing with, they know they know he's right about this. That they've been biting off more than they can chew, don't they? Yes. And so. It's not. It's not a controversial policy that he that that he's brought with him that him and Alex are enforcing, is it at all? Because no. because what's interesting is morale goes up because the men feel like they're being taken care of and they're being listened to and they're being trained properly, yeah. and and it starts to creep up again, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So Alan Halfer. So it's interesting because because Alan Halfer Alan Halfer is a is a big ridge, and um, that is if you're thinking about your arm again. It doesn't quite work the clock analogy, but it's sort of pointing at kind of two o'clock, I would yes. say. Um, but but it's it's further it's further east, so it's the most western part of the Alamhalfa Ridge is at the most is is south of the most eastern part of the Ruwaisat Ridge. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yes. So it's sort of very firmly in the British bit, but even by this stage, the most heavily defended part of the line is 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 the northern half. And then slightly to the west, you've got um, you've got the Alam Nile Ridge, and, and below that is very much the sort of the second half of the line, below Alam Half and Alam Nile, all the way down to the Katara Depression and the Himaimat feature. This this yeah. weird kind of sort of Monument Valley kind of looking thing is the second half of the line, and, and underneath that, the underneath south of the Alam Half Ridge is it's interesting because that's the bit where do you remember when we were talking about the Alam uh, the Alamein line? Um, yes. in an early episode was saying there's all these weird little cliffs and and you know some three foot high some 20 foot high these little escarpments and stuff it, it, and it's much more gravelly there um it's it's a it's a completely different part of the line to the, the very northern bit but his plan is basically exactly the same as the gazala line yeah which is to cut through to the south cut through and then cut up behind and, and encircle them in a drive to the coast and that's exactly his plan for the Gazala line, exactly now for Alan Halper. And it's interesting because suddenly that feels a bit stale, and, and it feels like Robles run out of ideas. Well, an Eighth Army's changed as well; it's being handled differently. So, so his circumstances have have altered. He's he's running on a set of assumptions, isn't he? But it'll be the same old thing. British are going to defend this in the same in the same way and get this wrong in the same way. And there's been a deliberate change in defensive policy i mean he still he still does you know he still does get round the bottom of the line doesn't he well sort of so so it's interesting <laughs> because because he attacks on the night of the 30th yeah uh, and they get hammered while they're getting they're coming through by the RAF. wellington's come over and they're struggling through minefields and because monty knows what his plan is he can prepare for it so seventh motor brigade my old friend albert martin he's down there now having retrained as, with six pounders and so they've got a screen of motorized six pounders attached to, you know, which they which they've quickly unshackled. And they're waiting for the tanks to come onto them. And as the tanks approach, they just open fire and they start hammering at these things. And then once they start getting too, you know too close, you know, they they hitch up their six pounders and move out of the way. Yeah. At which point yet more RAF come over and pound them as they're kind of struggling to make much advance. Um, 30 panzers are hit and going up in smoke in, in quick order in that morning of the 31st of August. General Nehring, who is the um, commander of the um, Africa Corps, he's wounded. And by 9am, they're three hours behind schedule. 
Yeah. And as we all know with these things, you know, getting behind schedule is not great. And also it's daylight now. It's daylight it's now. Daylight. So, and it's daylight now. So it's you now can be seen, seen miles off. Also, you don't. You, you also have six pounders now, which which you you didn't have before. Yep. So the, the the scales have been evened in terms of what you can do anti tank wise, and as you said, they've been people have been trained for exactly this role. And you're coming along the valley effectively, although it's yeah. dead flat, below Alam Nail and Alam Halfa. Yeah. So the British, you know, Eighth Army is on those ridges, and you, the Africa Corps, are not. So then Desert Stands says that winds whip up again, causing a massive sandstorm. So that prevents the RAF from coming in and hammering them again and does allow them to kind of make a little bit more progress. But when they get going again, this time they run into artillery and also the armour of the 22nd Armour Brigade who are not playing ball. And so they can't get up, they can't swing north over the Alam Halfa Ridge. They, they cannot do that cutback. So all they're doing is going in a straight line from kind of west to east rather than in a big curve round the back they just can't do that and as darkness falls on that first day on the 31st of august the rf return again and absolutely hammer the panzers mm. um, and and not only do they hammer the panzers they hammer the resupply so the following morning on the 1st of september 21st panzer cannot move they've run out of fuel they, they can't go anywhere they're absolutely sitting ducks and 15 panzer do manage to get going and come into contact with 8th armor brigade Nate Farmer Brigade, it's their first outing as tanks. This is the Sherwood Rangers. And what do the Sherwood Rangers do as 15th Panzer pulls back? They do a balaclava charge, Jim. They do a balaclava charge. <laughs> they do a balaclava charge. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And they get shot up and eight of them get knocked out just like that. And our friend John Sempkin, remember him? Yeah, yeah. He is, uh, he's at headquarters and he's in a, in a, I think, a Grant tank and he's watching it. And he's just going, no, what are you doing? Come back, come back. And of course, this is that, that's why I read that, that poem at the beginning of this. Yes. Slice that music, because that's so good. Um, so they don't have the best ever. But, but apart from them, these newbies, um, most of them do not try and counterattack. And, and throughout the 1st of September, the RAF just pounds them relentlessly. And they're caught in this huge wide expense on this very tricky ground where there are no clear lines of, 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 but because of those ridges, because of those little, those little escarpments all over the place, you can't just swivel around and just beetle off. You've got to kind of twist and turn and watch where you're going. It's not, it's not plain sailing. And they just pace them all the way, you know, all the way back. Um, and so by the morning of the 2nd of September, Rommel has to go on the defensive, having left countless panzers burning and, and smouldering on the on the open expanse below Alam Halfa and Alam Nail. And it's all over. It is all over. And, and that is the point where he is no longer going to win. Th- th- there aren't going to be any more reversals because Alex and Monty are going to make sure that, that however tough the upcoming battle is when they do engage, they will have overwhelming numbers of, of, of material advantage that will enable them to hammer their way through. And what they what um, Alex and Monty don't do is pursue Rommel at this point. No, not at all. They're not interested. They're clear that that's not the point. That the damage they could, the damage they're able to inflict, is best left as it is. Um, and so they don't, they don't go, they don't go after him. Which I think, which obviously then results in a political crackle back in um, Westminster. Like what you know. Why aren't you going? Doesn't it? You know, the, the, yeah, the, absolutely. But 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 Alex completely protects Monty of this. Monty knows none of this, as far as he's concerned. They're absolutely one, and and he has to have time to training. He has to have a full moon. Yeah. Um, 
which rules out September because he needs time for training, which means it has to be in October. And the only time the full moon is going to be in the right place at the right time is on the 23rd of, of October, which is the third week of October. So that is when he's going to launch. And 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 Alexander goes, I completely agree. Um, I will smooth that with with the prime minister. Um, Churchill puts his chucks his toys out the pram, but but Alex holds firm, and he says, okay. And Churchill eventually concedes points, and he says, okay. But when you launch the battle, I want you to signal to me in code, and I want you to say zip. So that's what he agrees to do. He says, absolutely, I'm very happy to do that. And so Monty then sends off all his guys in rotation for for training, and he also pulls people out of the line in rotation and sends them off, but partly for training, but also just to go and do physical exercise, lots of PT and lots of swimming by the coast. Get fit, eat well. If if you if you can take four days leave, take your four days leave in Cairo now. Now's the time to go and do it, um, uh, and, and train and train and train. But the people who are getting the most training is ten core, the core de chasse, mm. and what they're training is to go through minefields in the middle of the night. So lots of tape is laid out. Um, they they attack in night. They have dummy mines. They have flares, and they go over and over and over again in convoys. And so it's not just a question of battling your way through minefields it's also your march order it's it's also about working out okay so okay we've worked out now that this causes lots of dust and we can't see anything so what are we going to do about it well we're going to get in more goggles we're going to get in you know you need more lights at this particular point whatever it is and and they just train and train and train um and and get fit and the whole of that part of the western desert it, it just is transformed with vast supply dumps and there's huge tented cities with miles upon miles of of wires and pipelines and stashes of of ammunition and rations and trucks beetling back and forth between the canal zone and cairo and alex and the front and you know anyone who sees this just thinks wow we mean business you know this is this is doing it properly the first time we're going to be ready for this you can argue, and John McManus would, that this is, this is you know, the Lend-Lease effect really coming into bloom, isn't it? Is that the, the, the British have decided to pause here and let Lend-Lease sort of kick in, kick in, float and, and, and float all boats, as it, you know. Yeah, well, we're going to talk to John, obviously, in the next episode. Yes. And um, we will be talking about the impact of the Americans in the summer of 1942 and the part they play in all these, these battles, which is not inconsiderable, it has to be said. Yeah. But yeah. yes, absolutely. You know, from the 300 Germans um, through to lots of self-propelled guns to, to all sorts of stuff and to the arrival of, of the 57th Fighter Group and the 98th Bomb Group as well, who were integrated into the Desert Air Force at this point. And the plan is to... Because this is interesting, isn't it? Because because this is the first that there's not been an attack for a year, has there, by Eighth Army? Well, not since November. Not since November, exactly. Is to is to take the initiative finally, but within the, the what you know you can achieve with Eighth Army, what you can achieve with the training you've got, what you can achieve with the officers and kit you've got, and not try and do anything that's beyond its grasp to deliver a sure victory. Yeah. But also, actually, to do for Rommel, um, yeah. and the and, and the way to do that, the way to do that is to, is to bring massive force to bear. So what's to come is actually, I mean, what's interesting about Alamein is it demonstrates lots of things we keep coming back to, again and again on this podcast. Is is 
that then they characterize this battle is that attacking is really difficult. That's the first yep. principle in in this modern combined arms mechanized warfare is attacking is really really hard, yep. which is why when as we'll see things don't necessarily pan out exactly as they're hoped for. But I think I think before we get on to the final battle, which will be in the next episode, yes, I think it's worth <laughs> just looking at the Axis perspective. Well, yes. Yeah, yeah, where yeah, they're absolutely. at in the last sort of yeah. 10 minutes or so. Well, they're all over the place for a start, aren't they? They, they are all over the place, but I, but I think it's worth kind of just going into that a little bit because it's not just a question of them running out of parts. There's, it's, there's kind of sort of more to it than that. Uh, and, and I think it's also worth just having another look at the Luftwaffe because actually the, the numbers of Luftwaffe at the beginning of October um, 1942 are not inconsiderable. But Kesselring, who is above Rommel, who is the commander-in-chief of you know, all German forces in the south, decides that the way to give Rommel the best chance is to allow shipping to have a free passage. And what's the best way to allow free passage? Is to attack Malta. So he transfers lots of Luftwaffe forces back to Sicily for what is going to be the last blitz of Malta. Yeah. And this is launched on, I think it's the 10th or 11th of October. And within four days, they've lost 82 planes. Yes, it's a disaster. And he keeps going right up to the eve of Alamein. And they lose 350. You know, which on one level doesn't sound a lot by European standards, but by the standards of what's going on in the Mediterranean air war, that, that is a big, a big lot. And nine ships and 41,409 tons are sunk. Axis convoys are sunk just in October alone. But this is the, this is the perpetual German problem is you could argue those fighters would be better used in uh, over the desert but then that leaves Malta unbothered so that the Germans are always robbing Peter to pay Paul absolutely in everything everything they do and the Luftwaffe in particular Luftwaffe sort of the Luftwaffe is like the one fire engine in an you know in an enormous city that's on fire isn't it yes from conflagration to conflagration uh, and the interesting thing is in terms of fighter planes actually on the eve of Alamein the Luftwaffe have got more in North Africa than the Desert Air Force yeah in terms of fighters, I think they've got 595 and the DAF have got 510 or something like that. But actually, that's completely irrelevant because they don't have enough bombers because they use more fuel. Training of new pilots is suffering because of fuel. Ground crew has started to be stripped out for Luftwaffe Field Division, so they haven't got enough ground crew. So the knock-on effect in North Africa is that ground crews are you know, obviously struggling for, for lack of parts. They're also struggling for lack of numbers to do the job. It's just too much for too few. Um, air crews are struggling for lack of fuel, and because bombers use uh, are harder to maintain and use more fuel, they're reduced in numbers. So their effectiveness is is not great. And of course, you know we haven't talked about it, but there's you know all the raids by the SAS and the LRDG, you know, City Her Niche uh, on the 27th of July, where 31 planes are destroyed. You know, that's just that's the biggest, but there's others. That's rubbing their noses in it. It's, it's rubbing their noses in it. And then there's another big blow because. The other way is is that the you know the the British way is to, is to not worry about individual scores and, and worry about what the mass is achieving, whereas there is still this cult of the expertum within the the Luftwaffe and obviously one of the greatest aces of all, if not the greatest ace of all, is Hans Joachim Mustay, you know, who's the star of Africa, who's this extraordinary character, kind of sort of very um, feminine looking son of a general. His sister gets murdered in Germany. You know, he, he's a total maverick. I mean, completely eccentric, absolutely bonkers, um, but completely brilliant at what he does. 
And on the 1st of September, you know, during the Battle of Alan Halfley, he shoots down 17 British aircraft in one day. They're all fighter planes. You know, he's, he's absolutely incredible. But, but it's absolutely clear that he is a totally busted flash, that he's suffering very, very badly from, from combat fatigue. And on the 26th of September, he's involved in this fight, this, this dogfight with this obviously very, very skilled Spitfire pilot. And they just fly around and round and round and no, neither can get on the tail of the other. Eventually, they involved in this kind of sort of 300 feet off the deck kind of, you know, high speed pass at each other. They both break in the opposite directions. And then, but, but he hits the Spitfire pilot and he's just climbing out and he sees the Spitfire um, um, uh, start to burn and then dives down on him and knocks him out. But when he then touches back down, as his engine cuts out, he falls asleep in the cockpit and he has to be pulled out. He's covered in sweat. He's, you know, he's just, a, he's absolutely broken. And then a few days later, on the 30th of September, he's flying, he's flying one of the new ME 109 Gs. One of the problems with the Gs is that they've got this, that they don't have ball bearings in, they don't have the same, the right sort of thing. So the, the engine starts to overheat and it catches fire and he has to bail out. And as he bails out, he hits the uh, stabilizer at the back, um, knocks himself unconscious and plummets to the ground and that's him done. And it's a massive blow to the morale of the, of the Luftwaffe as a whole in North Africa that they're gilded. The most brilliant of them all has finally succumbed, and it's kind of symbolic of the kind of mire in which they find themselves. And that's not good because that means that they've got a massive, that the RF got that sort of massive material advantage for the battle to come, which is going to prove, frankly, decisive. And Rommel knows that he's he's in a terrible situation, and you know it's it's interesting when you look at it. So so. Do you know our friend, um, our old friend Hans von Luck. Do you remember him? Well, yes. I mean, uh, yes. I mean, his account of all this is very. Is, I've always taken with a bit of a pinch of salt. You know that he goes that 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 because he he goes all the way to see Hitler, doesn't he? And, and I knock the dust out of my uniform and explain to the you know all that. Well, he said he gets out to Mersamatru on the uh, on about the twenty first of September, and and he ta- he's ta- he's been called in by Rommel to take over the command of the reconnaissance battalion of the um, of twenty first Panzer. And when he gets to Mersamatru, you know everyone's about to move. You know Rommel is about to go back to Germany and, and talk to Hitler. Gauzer, his chief of staff, is about to go back too on leave. Also, the Nering is 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 ill, so he's about to be replaced as as the Afrika commander. Yeah, and so it just looks. Like the whole command is just suddenly collapsing before him, and it's kind of interesting that 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 same day that that Rommel flies off to Germany, the twenty third of September, is the same day that the Joseph N. Teal Liberty ship is made within ten days. Yeah, I mean by this by this point though, I mean it's it's a uh, in the in the official history of um, GCHQ, one of the points um, the author makes is he says it's it's interesting that the British go through this business of attacking when Rommel's away. Or, or when people are away, <laughs> yes. that, that they've got, they've, you know, obviously they can't make him leave, but they've got an eye on when, you know, it, obviously Monty needs his full moon and all that sort of stuff. But the fact that Rommel's not around when uh, Second of Alamein, Battle of Alamein actually occurs is quite interesting. And they know he's not, they know he's not around. Because we're, the, what, I mean, just as the equipment picture and the air superiority picture has flipped by this second half of 1942, so is the intelligence picture, and the the British have sorted out their um, wireless traffic problem, and also stopped up fellas, and also, uh, uh, you know, this is this is one of the sort of uh, purple patches for Enigma for 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 Ultra rather, and so they there is this very odd moment where this where the sort of 
the seesaw of fate goes bonk like that. Yeah, yes, yeah. In in the Allies' favour, and the Germans are high up on the on the seesaw, having you know pre- previously previously tipped it their way. If you see what I mean. Yeah, and it's Rommel goes home. I mean, the problem the problem Rommel with, goes and sees Hitler. Goes the problem the with the problem with von Luck's account though is that von Luck. Says yes, of course. Ron was depressed, and uh, and everyone was fed up and tired. Uh, you know, maybe Von Luck's writing for a post-war audience a little. Yeah, but very possibly. We we just don't know. But things are. I mean, Rommel does know how bad things are, and does know how sort of strung out he is. But that doesn't mean he says to Hitler, "Actually, you know what? We need to withdraw to Tobruk." You know, well, he, well, he doesn't say that. No, exactly. That's the point. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't say that. He go, he goes up. He goes and sees sees Keitel, Yodel and Hitler himself. He has a one-to-one audience. Uh, and he says, you know, I've now got, you know, a battalion holding a mile of line. Um, yeah. uh, we're putting down lots of mines. But the problem is, is lots of people are getting sick because, you know, the rations aren't getting through. And, you know, so they're, they're, they're not getting enough food and the food they're getting is not good enough quality. We need, that yeah. needs to be sorted. We're being bombed and strafed all the time. You know, it's very difficult to kind of hold this line. You know, what we need is lots more supplies and, and, and quickly. Yeah. And, you know, our Italian... Partners are completely useless. They're, you know, at best, used just about okay for defence, but certainly not for attack. They're completely rubbish. Which isn't fair. That that, that isn't a fair assessment because some of the Italians are, are pretty handy, actually. And so some of them are, yeah, and a lot of them yeah, are, you know. Yeah. So you know, yeah, and and so that he's not helping himself there. I mean, yeah. there's no attempt to kind of okay, well, let's try and train together. Let's try and kind of what can we do together? What how can we improve the situation? None of that. But you know what? I mean, you know, from from your Sicily book, that that what the how that all that table talk descends into. Well, and anyway, they've all got fat wives, and um, you, you know, yeah, when they talk, when the Germans talk about the Italians, yeah. that even if even if he's even you know that that you know that that conversation will have descended into where well, they're all useless anyway. They all eat too much pasta. Um, that's why we can't train with them. They're all they're inferior. They're 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 temperamental Latins and all that. You know that that's the tenor of what's gone on. And I think what's interesting is Rommel, you know, Hitler does a number on him and says, "Don't worry, I'll get you your Tiger tanks." And yes. looks him in the eye and shakes him by the hand, and and fires him. You know, lights the lights the pilot light inside Rommel and sends him on his way. And I think it's extraordinary because you know. Oh, so that's Rommel, all right then. Well, exactly. So, so, so that's you know, all these are you know, whenever, whenever you, whenever you sort of you know, when you wave Rommel in the sort of in the in the scales of history, you've got to remember that, that he would do things like that. He'd go see Hitler. He'd be convinced by Hitler. He'd go back to the desert, and then he, you know, whereas what he should be saying is, we need to shorten our lines. We need to create a situation where if the British want to come at us, they've got to do it at some distance, so we've got fair warning. All that. Because after Alan Halford, things are static, essentially. So it's not like you'd be retreating in the face of an advancing enemy, which is the difficult, the thing you don't do, you know, uh, militarily, if you could possibly avoid it. You know, it's, 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 a, it's very peculiar. And all it takes is the old Fuhrer tact, you know, the old tap on the elbow and the, the unwavering, the unwavering uh, glare in the, the eye. The blast of halitosis and he's Exactly. Off. And he goes, oh, OK, that sounds brilliant, my Fuhrer. All right, boss. <laughs> OK, <laughs> boss. You know, and maybe... Are you the... sure about those tigers, are you? Well, exactly. <laughs> When's he made a field marshal? Uh, after after uh, July, in July, in July. You, you see, so that's all part of it too. Hitler, Hitler's very, very keen at, you know, making promoting people and making them feel great about themselves, even when their situation... Well, often, especially when the situation is... Uh, uh, Really, really, really tricky, and that's got to be all part of this. You know, the Desert Fox is as vulnerable to the Führer attack as anybody else in the German 
establishment. Absolutely. And it, but, but the other thing that I think is brilliant about this and just crazy about this particular um, trip that he does is he also catches up with Goering and says, look, you know, the Luftwaffe aren't really putting their weight. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he says, and by the way, you know, the British have now got hurricanes armed with 40 millimeter cannons, which are destroying panzers. <laughs> and Goering goes, quite impossible. Nothing but pilots lies. All the Americans can make are razor blades and refrigerators. Oh, God. And that is contemporary. I mean, that is, there's no question about that. That's not Hans von Luck writing his memoirs later. It's just, I mean, for heaven's sake. I know. I got it wrong. It wasn't, it's not, um, it's, um, it's not Nering. It was uh, von Melenton by this time. It's the commanding officer of the, uh, of the, of the Africa Corps. He's off sick. Westphal, who is um, the uh, chief operations officer um, to the Panzer Army, he's also off sick. So, um, Von Thoma is now the temporary commander of the Africa Corps, and General Jörg Stummer is acting commander of the Panzer Army. I mean, what a what a mess! So they're undergoing like an organisational sort of convulsion, if nothing else, aren't they? Yeah. Everyone's getting used to new people. You could argue it's a mirror of what Eighth Army's going through, except only at the top. Eighth Army, there's yes. not this general comb through, and also the star guy has um, has absented himself. I mean, this, the scene is set for a titanic struggle. That thing Goering says, I mean, it's funny, but it also just sort of illustrates the absolute bitter tragedy that is the Second World War. That Goering's assessment of what, you know, of what American industry could deliver to the war is so stupid, is so ill-judged. Yeah. And at the core of the, all the German decision-making is people that thick and ill-informed. They're the people causing this tragedy on the continent of Europe and all around the world. It's, I mean, it, we laugh at it, but it's absolutely, it's the diabolical heart of this whole thing. It's people yeah. living in a fantasy world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Spending lives on their fantasy, running into reality. And um, that, that, you know, I know we, uh, this is an extraordinary story, this whole thing, but at the core of it is that fantastical view of the world that the Nazi high command had that's led everyone to the abyss and is going to lead all these German soldiers and all these Italian soldiers and then all these Duke soldiers into the meat grinder that is the Second Battle of El Alamein. And on that note, we have to stop there for our next episode. Oh, finally, finally about to get to the Second Battle of El Alamein. I feel like Winston Churchill. We're finally going to... Finally, I get my battle. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, see you next time. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Cheerio.